Hello, everybody. Welcome to the What's Next live podcast with one of my favorite people on the planet, Mr. Seth Godin. How are you, oh, my friend? For a minute there, I was worried I was on the wrong thing. <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to let you in a little secret. Seth and I tend to always wear the same color, but I always wear this in honor of Purple Cow, my favorite book. So if I'm talking to you, talking about Purple Cow. But anyway, for those of you who do not know who the fabulous Seth Godin is, he's an author, an entrepreneur, but most of all, he calls himself a teacher now. He is just a special human being, and I just want to welcome him to the show. So Seth, welcome. Thank you, Tiffany. I think of you all the time, and we don't get to do this often enough. So thanks for making it happen. It's such a privilege. Of, of course. Well, we've got people joining us today from San Antonio. We've got people joining us from Los Angeles. So please put your questions below in whatever platform you're watching us on. But what I want to do is just take your eye to the little corner in the right that shows you a menagerie of all of Seth's books. There are a lot. There are 19 but the one that made me fall in love with Seth was Purple Cow. So I'm going to start at the beginning. I'm going to start at the movement that was Purple Cow. So tell us a little bit about that book, how it started, uh, and how it has just remained this, you know, love uh, love affair for everybody who has read the book 20 years later almost, right? Almost. Yeah, I love this story. Uh, it chokes me up a little bit. Um, so... I was a book packager. I invented books for a living. I did 120 books, a bunch of bestsellers over the course of uh, 10 years, a book a month. And then I wrote my first quote, real book, which was permission marketing, and it became a bestseller. And once you have a bestseller, you can write the book you want to write. And I wrote a book called Survival is Not Enough. Charles Darwin wrote the foreword. The book was a total failure, came out right after 9-11. It sold about uh, 20,000 copies. And I was dead to book publishing. They wanted nothing to do with me. And, um, and then I got a really disturbing phone call. It turns out that a dear friend of mine named Lionel Poulin, who was the most important, most famous baker in the world, had died in a helicopter crash. And uh, the first thing I did was make sure his kids were okay. Uh, and the second thing I did was, I really need to dedicate a book to Lionel. I would like to do that. But I didn't have a book. So I wrote Purple Cow about being remarkable, about being special, about not fitting into conformity in the industrial system so that I could dedicate a book to Lionel. And I went to all the people in New York City and every one of them turned me down. No one would publish it. So I decided to publish it myself. And what I did was, I don't have it here. It's somewhere in the other room. I said, how am I gonna make this special and take my own advice? So uh, there, now that's the inside of the thing, but you don't have the, do you have the container anymore? Oh, I have the, oh, it's in my other room. I do All have right. the container. We'll get that in a minute. Anyway, <laughs> um, so I had a column in Fast Company and I persuaded Alan and Bill to run an excerpt. And it, after the excerpt, it said, if you want a free copy of this book, send me five bucks for postage and handling. And I printed 10,000 of them and I could make them and ship them for less than five bucks. So I was going to break even no matter what. And in three days, we sold 5,000 copies, which was all that was part of that offer. And it came in the milk carton to your house. And that made my point. And after that, the phone rang, and it was Adrian Zakheim. And Adrian was like, well, maybe I was wrong. So yeah. And he's been my publisher ever since. 
Well, so if you look in your top right, you'll see the picture with Seth and his milk carton, right? That's it. So I have it. <laughs> okay, Seth just left, but he'll be back. But the, the funny story is, is how I met Seth was I had read Purple Cow and I said, I took my entire team into a room. I bought everybody a copy and I said, everybody has to read, there it is. Everybody has to read Purple Cow. So tell us the well, story. Let me tell you about milk cartons. Milk cartons have to be made by a special machine that knows how to fold them and seal them. You know what comes in milk cartons? Things that are wet. And uh, books don't like being wet. So where was they going to find a machine at a place that made milk cartons that was dry and that didn't care about sanitation? And the answer, it occurred to me, was Epsom salts also come. So I found an Epsom salt company in Newark, New Jersey, that was willing to shut down their Epsom salt assembly line for three days and make milk cartons instead filled with books. There you go. Well, what I love about that story is it was, how do I do something nobody think I could do? I just had Mark Hansen on. I don't know if you know who he is, but he wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. 144 people said, nope. He's now sold 500 million books. So, you know, and then that's what happens. But I think the creativity that you showed in the milk carton and the consideration you put behind how you wanted to market it and stand out is what I've always enjoyed about you. Because I think me personally, anyway, I feel like that's always been your brand. It's like, how do I be authentic? How do I be interesting and different? How do I connect in new ways? And so you know, when you did that in the milk carton, what was the original response? Well, I, I need to differentiate something that's really important because it's easy to misunderstand what you just said. I do not believe a purple cow is a gimmick, nor do I believe it is something that calls attention to itself. I believe a purple cow is remarkable. And what remarkable means is someone else decides it's worth talking about. So the reason that this worked is because if this was on your desk, people came by and said, what's that? You left it on your desk so they would say that because you wanted them to ask what it was. So you could say that you were an early adopter, smarter than the average bear, eager for new ideas. By giving people this, I was helping them. I wasn't helping me. And that's the difference between this approach and so many of the gimmicks that we see online. Right? Like it's, it's easy to ride down Main Street naked on a horse, but that doesn't help you if no one else wants to be part of that movement. And so during this time, especially, you know, and I think the thing at the bottom of that was it was authentic. It wasn't a gimmick, right? It really was part of the authenticity of who you are and who you've always been. And so what you learned from Purple Cow, what was after that? What was the next, what was the next challenge? So the book after that was the one Adrian really wanted, which was Free Prize Inside, which came in a cereal box to go with the milk carton, get it? And it didn't, it didn't sell that many copies. And part of the reason, it did fine, but part of the reason was that I am not good at writing how-to or sequels. Um, and the subtitle was How to Make a Purple Cow. And it was, I'm glad I wrote it, but it's not in the pantheon of the shortlist. And then... I used the momentum I had to realize that marketing is not how do we interrupt people, how do we sell something. Marketing is 
who we are, what we do, how we change the world. And that led to Tribes and Lynchpin and The Dip. And those three books each solved a problem that no one had really written about before. And that is uh, at the heart of what the work I want to do as a teacher. I'm not here to chop down trees or to sell seats in a workshop. I'm here because if I notice something that hasn't been talked about clearly, I would like to be able to talk about it. And how do you uncover that? Because I think that's, that's, that is, that takes a very specific skill and a passion and a curiosity, right? Identifying something, being passionate about it, because we could all identify something we don't think has been said, but are you really passionate about how can you communicate that message uh, to get people to want to not only read it, but even adopt some of the things that you talk about? So how do you yeah, keep- it's very much, it's very much a, it's very much a skill. And it's not a talent. It's something you can choose to do. And the question is, um, do you get satisfaction? Are you willing to put in the cycles to explain something to someone else? And I have, I used to help run a summer camp in Northern Canada. I spent a lot of time with five-year-olds and 10-year-olds. The questions you ask kids and the ones that you want them to ask you are not how do I do on the test? It's to understand fundamental concepts of how the world actually functions. And so, you know, when I wrote Tribes, it's about what does grassroots leadership look like? Where does it come from? When I wrote Lynchpin, it was the broad question, what do we do after the factory falls apart? In my new book, The Practice, it's why do some people, why are some people able to ship creative work and others aren't? These are not technical questions like how do you use SEO to move from page three to page two in the rankings. Yeah. It's fundamental questions about our work and why it matters. And sometimes I don't find a question like that that I like for years. And other times they just keep coming. And I think you the thread through everything that I know about you and everything, every conversation we've ever had, it is really rooted in my opinion anyway about kind of what matters. Yeah. What matters? Right. Uh, Life's too short to work on stuff that doesn't matter. So for marketers today, it's even more so, right? Leaning in with values and kind of what matters from a brand perspective and a society perspective. And what have you seen that has really moved you from a marketing perspective, potentially, or even a brand perspective that's made you actually stop and go, wow, that was really impactful to me. Anything of recent? So... I was talking to uh, an author the other day, and we were both lamenting how the marketing industrial complex takes individual interactions of humanity and tries to turn them into fake things. Like, how do you organize 400 people to all write a five-star review at the same moment so that it blah, 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 blah. That's not, like, you can hack the system, but that's not what people want, right? And... So what touches me is when I see people, whether it's a for-profit or a service or a nonprofit, who say, how am I going to be a person right now? How am I going to show up as a human for other humans, not to manipulate an easily measured system, but just because it needs to be done? And, you know, I've been impressed by so many of the responses, uh, both to the health crisis, the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement, the long overdue focus uh, 
on racial justice, people are showing up like people. And that has been in short supply. And the point of this thing we're in is it's not a race to figure out who can get the most zeros on their electronic ledger or earn likes from people who don't like them or make friends with people who aren't their friends. The point is, would we miss you if you didn't show up? And we're seeing that happening more and more. Well, and I think that's so profound in so many ways, because if you notice in my description of him underneath Seth's name, it says author, entrepreneur, and most of all, most importantly, most of what he's proud of is teacher. And you've really shifted gears, you know, while you still write books, obviously, but you have all kinds of other things like Alt-MBA, you're doing podcasts. And so this sort of giving from a teach perspective, uh, I can only give you a personal story. Um, it was, I don't know now, it's probably been eight years ago. We were speaking at an event uh, in uh, Boston and it was Seth Godin, Brene Brown, Chelsea Clinton, Malala, and me. And I, first of all, I was like, why am I here? <laughs> but I ran into to Seth in the green room and I was like, oh my God, somebody I know, right? Like, and so Seth and I sat down and I said, I just need like 10, 10 minutes of your time. Can you do today? He's like, of course, right? Sits down with me. I tell him I'm at this crossroads. I feel like I, I'm kind of stagnating. I don't know what to do. And he gave me two sentences of advice. He looked me dead center in the eye and he said, and I quote, so these are Seth's words, not my words, right? Those people are good. You're great. Go be great and write a book and find your path. And it was like, I say that to myself all the time. And it changed the trajectory of my life and my career. And so the teacher in Seth is what I actually really love. So if you read his, his books or you listen to his podcast, there's this underlying message of this kindness of teaching. And so how has that been for you? Like Alt-MBA and and uh, Akimbo and all the other things you're doing, how rewarding has that been? They're rewarding in different ways. You know, um, being able to sit with you in a green room is super special. It's the hot fudge Sunday of the day, right? Uh, running a workshop at scale, the thrilling part for me is either the building of it or the interaction with people who have been transformed by it. But the discipline of building something at scale is different than teaching canoeing in Canada. That the Alt-MBA, I'm not in it. I've never been in it. I architected it. I designed the whole thing. But people who take it don't interact with me. That's what we promised, that they will not interact with me. And that's the only way to have 4,800 alumni in 100 countries, right? Um, in something like the, the Creators Workshop, which we launched next week, uh, there'll be a thousand people in it, 500 people in it. I don't scale. I'm not supposed to, but right. I made these lessons. I created this setting and then I sit here and I watch people interact and they don't even know I'm watching because it's an open platform and you learn so much when you can see people who aren't trying to please you interacting with each other around the lessons. And I really believe that learning and educating are bifurcating right now. And education is at the end of its run. This compliance, conformist, uh, how do we coerce people into doing what we tell them to do mindset? You know, what all these institutions that are having kids educated from home are discovering is that if there isn't surveillance and a test, they leave. And learning 
is what happens when we want to go somewhere. And so you can learn to bike and you can learn to juggle and you can learn to speak French. Those are voluntary activities. And I'm really focused on that work. And I just, I see it paying off. It's really special to watch people level up. Well, you know, and that's kind of your thing. I mean, I don't know how many people subscribe that are listening to this to your newsletter, but it's one of like the most liked, followed, shared newsletters. Uh, and you share it on Twitter, but you don't ever engage on Twitter. You just quietly watch and listen. <laughs> so Actually, I don't even watch and listen. I don't use Twitter for one minute a day, not one. My life is better because of it. Well, you know, I, I, have, I have my rant about social media. Basically, for those of you who haven't heard it yet, the customer are manipulating you into feeling insecure and insufficient until you check it again. And when you check it again, they make you feel more insufficient, more insecure and better, until you check it again. And they want you to keep checking it and they expose you to people who don't like you and they expose you to trolls. So you'll check it again. And I really think people should just quit cold turkey. It's not making the world better. It just isn't. Well, we have so a question for me. you. Um, Spencer, the one and only. We have a we have a question. Well, we have a couple. So one of them is from Spencer. Okay, you do you think do you think that the current situation can help the uh, advance the idea of a flipped classroom? It's looking like it's going to be a hybrid setup come September. Right. So uh, for those of you viewing at home, Spencer is a groundbreaking entrepreneur. You should check out uh, his software if you haven't before. It's called Prezi. It's pretty cool. Um, but putting that aside for a second. The uh, flipped classroom, which I learned about from Sal Khan, I don't know if he coined the term, he probably did, is it's so dumb to have a million teachers doing their best lecture every day. They can't. We should do lectures at night and homework during the day. We should assign kids, go watch this TED Talk, that Sal Khan course, this thing, Go watch it all from world-class presenters. And then tomorrow, in real time, we will do homework together. It doesn't make sense to do lectures live. It makes zero sense. It's a lecture. So that flip has to happen. It's super smart. The hybrid thing is being misunderstood by every educator I've spoken to. And I spent a couple hours on the phone with the principal of the best high school in New York City the other day. Here's the deal. If a kid isn't emotionally enrolled in at-home learning, it will not take place. You can try anything you want. It will not happen. So at home, it has to be about projects. And that means the projects have to be voluntary. We got to be able to say to, to the kids, there's no reason in the world for 20 of us to be on the Zoom call at the same time. There's none. Each one of you needs to do projects. Do them together. Do them separately. We can do projects when you're eight. And we can do projects when you're 20. But we need that mindset to expose people to learning because it's that posture that enables kids to get, or adults, to get from where they were to where they want to go. So if you are doing a Zoom call and you're not doing breakout rooms, you're doing it wrong. And if you are having everyone come together in Zoom so you can lecture them, you're doing it wrong. It is totally possible to do this right. I hope it will get done right more, but we need to immediately cease doing it wrong. Well, I'd say, you know, if nothing else, like 
this time has given us an opportunity to pause and say, how do we actually democratize education in a way that everyone has access to it at a similar pace, right? And I use this example where I was uh, driving, it was like the third or fourth week of being locked down. I'm in Los Angeles uh, and I was driving down the street and the Starbucks parking lot was packed and it was closed. So I was, what's going on? I was going to CVS, which was next door. So I drew, had to drive through this park. I looked at everyone's cars. What were they doing? Sitting in the cars, getting free Wi-Fi from Starbucks. And there were kids in the car. You know, there were parents in the car on Zoom calls. They were doing classes. They were right. And so for all this to work, it has to be equal. Right. And, and getting equal education is the opportunity for everybody to have a chance. Uh, and the question I often get now is for those of us in the workforce, how important is it to reskill? Right. And to think, what could I be doing differently? So how do you approach the reskill conversation with people who have been working for decades, let's say? Yeah, well, uh, you know. Talk about irony. I was at a uh, an event back when I used to go to events, and this dyed-in-the-wool Ayn Randian capitalist was bragging about how important capitalism is to the world at solves problems. And his number one example was the internet. And I like didn't have the heart to tell him the internet was built by the government, buddy. But leaving that aside, <laughs> what once once we figure out that it's important for everyone in this country and other countries to have high-speed internet. It is not a technically difficult problem, nor is it expensive. So what are we gonna do with it once people get high-speed internet and an $89 Chrome pad? Well, what we need to do with it is build a regime of learning, not education. And learning needs to be done when you're an adult as well. So there's hard skills and soft skills. I call soft skills real skills. Hard skills, are things like how many words per minute can you type? And do you know how to program in Python? These are easily measured. But they're not important anymore because a computer can do them. What is important is honesty, charisma, creativity, problem solving, uh, emotional resonance, emotional... I mean, I can make a list of 40 things you want in a coworker and a boss, an employee and a spouse, right? Those skills are skills. Some people call them attitudes, but they can be learned. So they're skills. And if you even need to use the word reskilling, you didn't get the joke because it's not like there's a pandemic and then we go back to normal. It's whatever you thought you knew was out of date already anyway. How, you know, you don't get to go to the gym once and then you're in shape for the rest of your life. The same thing is true with learning. So if we take an hour a day of Netflix away and an hour a day of YouTube mind numbing away, in two hours a day, what could you learn? Right. What could you model? What could you connect? What could you level up? And that's why I say everyone should have a blog, even if no one reads it. If you write a blog every day, even under an assumed name, you will get new skills. So it was another interview I did with you and I actually used it this morning. And someone said to me almost exactly what you just said. Like, I don't know how to do something. I need to learn how to do something. And Seth gave me sage advice. It was go do it. Like, if you want to be a marketer, go market. If you want to be a blogger, go blog. And, you know, you might not be great at it in the beginning, but it's all about learning to your point. Soft skills you can, you know, you have to kind of do to learn, to fail, to get better, et cetera. Um, and, and I think the advice of, you know, one hour a day, I mean, I think the five hour a week rule, right? If you could pull an hour a day and just go learn something or listen to something that you know nothing about, you may never use it, but it's about keeping your mind 
sort of this beginner's mindset of being open to new ideas. Yeah, I mean, here, so quick survey, go ahead and type in the comments, yes or no. Do you know what GPT-3 is? Well, okay, no. <laughs> Does that count? Okay, that's, yes or that's no. One, that's one, yep. we have 100% of the people have voted no. Everyone else is still thinking. Thinking. Well, don't Google search it, no cheating. So. Right, but GPT-3 is going to change the world. It's going to change it deeply and widely. And informed people need to know what it is. You don't know how to, you don't have to know how to write it, but you have to know how it's going to be part of your life. And th for those of you who are curious, GPT-3 is- we uh, Oh, we got one yes, but no yes, name. Yes, uh, it is natural language processing software that can write a blog post that you cannot tell I did not write. It can uh, answer questions in which more than eight out of 10 people can't tell it from a human. World's over, right? Changed completely, upside down. And what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do if you are a person who writes pretty well for a living and now there's a free computer that can write better than you on demand? What are you going to do if you're in customer service that six months from now, every customer service request you can imagine can be answered by a computer, right? Boom. What are you going to do? We need to learn a lot really fast. And I can mention that on 20 topics. And so the question is not how do you become the world's expert on anything, but how do you become informed enough and flexible enough that when the world changes, because it's going to change, you're okay with that? Well, you know, for me, it really changed on my willingness to learn when in my mind and in my career, I shifted from being on the consumption path to the contribution path. And yeah. well said. Right? consumption path was what can I get? What's my title? How much money? What am I doing? Like that kind of thing to the contribution path of, you know, what are the things I can do so that I learn so I can share and we can all learn together really changed the way I approach things. Um, That's the name of your new book. Oh, so this is the joke. The last time he told me that I wrote a book, like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I have it in me at the moment, but maybe that's, yes, maybe you do. yeah, it's but a contribution. It's a contribution. It is a contribution, but I'm going to, I want to, I want to sort of round out this conversation with your, you know, not the one that's about to come out, but your last contribution, which it is an image at the top called this is marketing. Um, and what would you say about this is marketing today, knowing uh, where we are now and anybody who's read this is marketing, ask any questions of, of what you thought about it uh, or any of his other books, of course, because you have 19 choices. Um, uh, and I have a couple back there. You could whoop, whoop. You could see them on my little stack right there. My so Seth Godin stack. The, the number one question you get asked and the number one question I get asked for the last 12 weeks is, how does all this change in the COVID world? And I reread the book. And other than adding a, a foreword that would say, wear a face mask, there's nothing <laughs> in the entire book that I would change. Because maybe you, what, could put over, maybe you could put over the O a little exactly. face mask. That's a good idea. Um, the thing is, we got rid of a lot of froth. There was marketing about marketing. There were people waiting in line to buy a Supreme sweatshirt for $175. Like things that aren't going to happen again for a long time. Hype and spin. And what are they replaced by? They're, the foundation of what it means to be a modern marketer hasn't changed. Tell a story that people want to hear. Tell the truth show up in a consistent way. 
make things better by making better things. Those, none of those are different, right? That if you go back to the marketing books of 10 or 20 years before that, they're all obsolete because they're all about harvesting attention using mass media. There's no more mass media. So attention's a totally different project. But the fundamental elements of bringing ideas to the world in a way that you're proud of, that you can get paid for, is at the heart of what we're going to be able to do next. So, you know, I wrote things, I wrote the very first book about digital currency. Uh, I should have spent the advance on Bitcoin. I didn't. I spent it on food. But um, <laughs> I, that whole book, that whole book is obsolete. This book, it hasn't changed. I agree with it. Well, we've got another question from Harold Seth. Do you think that content curation and ger general serendipity are fundamentally at odds? I'm going to try to guess what that means because it went right over my head. So um, there's two kinds of content curation. There is the content curation of what goes into the next issue of The New Yorker and how do we make an Encyclopedia Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica article an appropriate length. This is generous, thoughtful, skilled curation. And then there is this thing which is fading, which was called content marketing that really annoyed me with a capital C. And content marketing was how do we hustle to find crap on the internet, somehow put it into a bundle and use that to harvest attention. And it worked for a little while, but then people got smart because they always do. You can't come out ahead doing that stuff. So I think being known as a thoughtful curator is a fine place to be. And uh, that leads to serendipity. That leads to Seth and Tiffany talking to one another because both of us have been walking around bumping into each other for long enough that the serendipity happens. Well, yeah, and and uh, there's no question, um, you know, that there are so many ways, you know, I, I often get asked, you know, who who do you view sort of as a mentor, you know, or who's been a mentor to you along the way? And and I like to say that I have a number of champions, right? Pe and some of them are on this. Uh, Kevin Gilroy's on this. He's been following my career and someone I, you know, modeled my own career after. Uh, I've got other friends that are on here, same thing. Um, and I, I, when I read Tribe, I felt like that. Like I always say, I love my tribe. And right now, really leaning into your tribe to find out first, how's everybody doing? When we were in the, in waiting for this to start, the first thing Seth said to me is before we start, I wanna know, how are you, right? To take that moment and to say, how are you? Because everybody's dealing with everything in very different ways. Um, so reaching out and also being responsive if someone reaches out. So, you know, when you think about that today, how, how has that changed in your life? Just the frequency you reach out or that, you know, very quick interaction of how are you doing and checking in with people? How, how are you maintaining that today? I think what a lot of people have done is made their circle smaller because it's easy to have a big circle when you're high-fiving it's hard to have a big circle when you're hugging because it, 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 it's more uh, heartfelt and connected and takes a lot more time. So, you know, one of the challenges you and I have is we know a lot of people digitally and there's so many people who I care about and who I recognize, you know, like Spencer and I have never had lunch together, but he's one of those humans like, oh yeah, smart guy. 
Um, but I didn't send an email to Spencer saying, how are you feeling? Because the circles are different. And, and so um, there's a very tight, small circle of people that I'm doing my best to keep in touch with. But so many people are disrupted and so many people are uncertain. And we are learning a lot of valuable lessons about dignity and what it means to be seen and to be fair and to be open and to stand with people who maybe need someone to stand with them. So it's all exhausting and you're allowed to say you're exhausted and it may be racing as fast as we can. Isn't everything Milton Friedman cracked it up to be. Yeah. So I'm going to take two minutes. I'm going to say thank you to Jim Hopkins for joining today. He did the story of sales with me. Awesome guy. We've got Kevin Gilroy, who I already said hi to. We've got Spencer, obviously, from um, uh, Prezi. Uh, we've got Marie Rourke. We've got Bill Tomoff. Uh, we've got all kinds of people who have sort of flown around my career for a really long time. And, you know, they continue to support what I do. And it, it allows me to feel like I'm in the contribution mode, um, which is a great place to be. But, you know, Seth, you know what? I, I, I reached out to you three or four times to just go thinking of you, right? Because um, I, you have your inner circle and sort of the circle that goes beyond that. And I just want you to know, my friend, I love you dearly. You are special and so kind to always be generous with your time. Uh, so many people here, uh, you know, admire all the work that you've put out. It, it, the world would not be as great of a place without you in it. So I thank you so much for being part of my journey and one of my friends and someone who always inspires me to do what is uncomfortable with a smile on my face. So, you know, any, any last parting words? Uh, Cause I just wanted to tell you how much you mean to me. You are a contribution. Truly, truly you are, you have achieved it. And we would miss you if you weren't doing it. So thank you, Tiffany. Well, thank you everybody for joining us. Thank you, Seth. Uh, hope to see you on the other side. Stay safe, be kind, be kind. And as Seth said, wear a mask. Wear see a mask. you next time. Thank you Make everybody. Make a rocket, everybody.